Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Massachusetts coronavirus cases have not recently spiked like other parts of the country, but COVID-19 numbers keep rising in predominantly Latino communities. Here and across the country, Latinos are three times more at risk of being infected. Plus, Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden ramps up his campaign's effort to spur a higher turnout among Latino voters. And why are Latinos clashing over Spanish colonial statues? That and more on our Latinx Roundtable. Later in the show, colleges across the country grappled with the challenges of teaching in a pandemic as they were forced to switch to remote learning. It was even more challenging for students, especially the young women enrolled in a unique Massachusetts-based program whose responsibilities go beyond classwork. How Bard Micro College in Holyoke is making a macro-sized difference for low-income young mothers. Bard gave me life and hope for the future right, that I've not ever had, like I've had those moments before, but they would flee, they would leave, right? And so for the first time in my life, being at Bard, they believed so much in me more than I believed in myself that something clicked inside of me where now it's staying with me, right? Like I did that so I can do anything. But first, joining me remotely, Julio Ricardo Varela, digital editor for the Futuro Media Group, co-host of the In the Thick podcast, and founder of Latino Rebels. Welcome back, Julio. Hey, Callie. And also with me, Adriana Maestas, a Southern California-based freelance writer covering Latino politics. Hello, Adriana. Hi, Callie. So glad to have both of you. Let me set the table for our first conversation, and that's about uh, the high risk of infection among Latinos. It's a high risk among uh, black folks as well, but the inequity among Latino communities is striking. The point I want to make is that it's not just in urban areas. It's in rural areas. Sometimes it also includes Native American people, but people need to understand that this is a a pattern across the way. As the uh, mayor of Kansas City, Missouri said it's clearly, uh, as far as he's concerned, that uh, it's systemic racism, which he says doesn't just evidence itself in the criminal justice system. Here in Massachusetts, those rates, that three times higher rate that I quoted, it's so striking that uh, this past week, Governor Charlie Baker has announced that the state is launching a new Stop the Spread campaign and offering free COVID-19 testing in eight municipalities, and many of them have predominantly Latino communities. So let's get your response to this. I should also mention with regard to the numbers that the CDC is releasing that our own uh, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley and others has really pressed the CDC to do a racial breakdown in terms of both infection rates and 
death rates. So, Julio. You know, it just I think the last time I was on your show, Kelly, it was at the start of the beginning of the pandemic, you know, of the lockdown in Massachusetts. And we all said that this was coming. And, you know, everything that we were saying in, that this was going to happen, and you're right, it's not only happening in urban areas, but it is impacting communities of color. And let's be real about Massachusetts. The, the study that you cited, nine of the 10 cities with the highest rate of coronavirus infection are communities of color. I mean, Chelsea, Brockton, Lawrence, Everett, Lynn, Revere, Randolph, Worcester, Danvers, and Lowell. I mean, anyone that understands Massachusetts, like, it is so obvious where this is happening. And what's, what's fascinating about it, that it became this surprise, Callie. Mm. And it's so obvious as the, the Commonwealth continues to effectively fight this pandemic, the fact that we're still we're, we're one of the states that is actually trying to do it right, but still within the state, the disparity of unequal communities is so obvious. It's beyond sadness. We saw this coming. And the only thing I can say to myself is like, is this going to wake up the political leadership of Massachusetts. Is this going to be transformational? I hope so, Callie. I really do. Hmm. But I'm, I'm not 100% convinced. Adriana, remind uh, people who may not have been paying attention that the reason these numbers are so high, for one thing, is that a lot of Latinos are essential workers. Absolutely. So, I mean, you have Latinos who are essential workers, and then compounding that, you also have, you know, prior to COVID, um, a lack of access to care. You have it's a population that does have underlying conditions, and then you also have too just um, you know multi generational households where you have you might have three or four generations in one household because um, of economic circumstances, and that's just the way it is. It's also a little bit traditional. So a lot of the children are getting it because someone in the in the house was exposed at work. So, you know, that, that's basically what we're seeing. Um, it seems that most of the, the growth and exposure is happening at work. People who are called back to work, um, you know, they have to go back to work so they can make their rent, make ends meet, and that sort of thing. One of the things that you pointed out uh, that if we want to even drill down further in these statistics, um, out in California where you are, Latino children are testing positive at higher rates. Talk about that. Yeah, so Latino children are testing um, positive at higher rates than other groups of children. So they're accounting for a majority of all the cases in California under 18. Um, Latino minors, they're about, right now, they're close to 70% of cases where the race and ethnicity is known. And Latino minors are close to 50% of the population of states' kids. It's right about 48% right now. So you see they make up, you know, a majority of COVID cases for children. And it's kind of sad because, you know, they're not even in school at this point. They're, they're catching this because of the parents or somebody that they're coming in contact with in the household. Well, that was going to be my next point. What, what happens now that the president is pressuring schools to open? I think that you're going to have a lot of parents who are not, just not going to send their children to school if they don't feel that it's safe. And Governor Newsom said the other day, I mean, he's kind of pushing back on sending children to school. He said something like, you know, we're going to listen to science and we're going to follow our own agenda and listen to the experts and not sort of do this because President Trump is saying that children should be in school. 
So I suspect that at least in our state, there will be some pushback. Um, you know, and he was very clear too when this started. I, you know, Governor Newsom has small children himself. He even said, you know, when he admitted to the public that he didn't think school would be back in session back in, I think it was like early April. You know, I, I think he has proceeded cautiously when it comes to school. But I know that, you know, that in California, we have pretty strong labor when it comes to teachers, and a lot of them are sounding the alarm already, and they don't feel safe right. going back. So, you know, Callie, I'll mention one thing. There's a poll that came out that actually we published on Latino Rebels this morning about Latino parents. It said 53% of Latino parents or caregivers are considering not sending their children to school or childcare this fall. And that's a poll by Latino Decisions and an um, organization called Abriendo Puertas, Opening Doors. And they're actually going to have a fuller study in, in August. But there is this big, big concern that kids aren't going to go back. And Is there a move toward that, homeschooling in the, among those parents? I heard the problem, and it, even, in, even if you look at Massachusetts, I don't even think the governor, that's the one place that Governor Baker, I personally think, and the, and the um, education secretary, they haven't done that good of a job on education. And I think this is all connected. So in, when you talk about public schools, especially in places like Boston, which are predominantly black and brown, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and you go to a place like Chelsea or, or Lowell, and, and you're, you're in places where there are higher COVID rates, there is this feeling of like, what are we doing? What are we doing as a community and as a leadership? And as much as Governor Baker gets praised, and yes, Massachusetts, for, what, for where we were in April to where we are now, um, you know, you know, I, I, I hear my friends out in California, like Adrian and other people, and it breaks my heart that California is back to where it is. But, but Governor Baker in education, it, it, it's impacting mental health. It's impacting well-being. There's no, doesn't seem to be a clear. It's everyone. It's like every school district for themselves. It just is this lack of a vision that is just. This should be the front page story every day. Mm. Black and brown communities in this country and indigenous communities are are suffering way more and especially in the context of the movement for, for black lives. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm speaking with our Latinx Roundtable guests, Julio Ricardo Varela of the Futuro Media Group and Latino politics journalist Adriana Maestas. Uh, Let's take a look at the uh, President Trump hosting the Mexican president for his first visit to the White House. So here he is uh, doing his in-person meeting on uh, last Wednesday with Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. Following President Lopez Obrador's remarks, we'll sign a joint declaration committing ourselves to a shared future of prosperity, security, and harmony. With this signing, we pledge the close and continued friendship between the United States and Mexico. All right. Now, the reason this is a part of this conversation that we're talking about in the rising numbers of COVID, uh, particularly among uh, Latino communities, is that there's a problem on the border between the U.S. Um, and Mexico with uh, the cases of COVID. And there's also a problem with this 
particular meeting being hosted at a time when the president is trying to get away from uh, talking about that and uh, other issues that are a little bit more pertinent. He's there to the Mexican president is there to sign the treaty that was uh, agreed to some time ago. And by the way, that would also involve the Canadian president, Trudeau, who declined to attend this meeting. So, Adriana, you start off. Yeah. So um, basically, you know, with COVID surging on both sides of the border, what we're seeing is um, a lot of the northern towns in Mexico, they've been trying to restrict the the cross-border movement. And, um, and you know, they, they really don't want Americans to come in and make the situation worse down there. So um, that's sort of the backdrop of this. But, you know, like you said, Trump and Lopez Obrador, they were signing the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement that took effect on July 1. So this meeting I see as just sort of kind of like it was a formality. And um, but what I thought was kind of interesting is Lopez Obrador, he's received a lot of criticism in Mexico for how he's been handling the COVID situation there. Yeah. And um, I just thought it would it was kind of interesting when you saw the pictures of them. You know, they both aren't wearing masks like they're really, you know, the emphasis seemed to be signing this, um, signing the agreement. And really, I didn't see too much else about it other than. We did see Lopez Obrador praise Trump for how he has talked about Mexicans, which a lot of mm-hmm. people thought, like, oh, my God, like, why is he saying this, given all that we know how President Trump started his campaign, really disparaging Mexicans. But one thing to remember is that, um, you know, they had been working for a while to get this agreement signed. So some people are saying, well, you know what, Lopez Obrador is not going to go over there and tear into Trump when the whole goal is just basically getting this thing formally signed and, you know, like formalized. And um, and for Mexicans in Mexico, it kind of really doesn't matter whether Trump is in power or a Democrat, because um, the way things are in Mexico, you know, Trump can talk about a border wall, but like to Mexicans, they feel like there's already a wall there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's kind of, you know, where it is in terms of, uh, painting the context of that meeting. I should also point out, uh, Julio, before you comment that, uh, the Mexican president made a big deal out of saying he tested negative before he came. Yes. He made, I'm going to touch on a couple of points. First of all, people need to understand that, um, the people that don't know Lopez Obrador, he's known as AMLO. Uh, he is a leftist, you know, he, he, he came from the left. Of of, uh, of of Mexican politics and and he and he kind of made a deal to kind of be a little bit more moderate so he can win, but he's this populist. He's this leftist populist who's always talked about you know, you know we need to rise from the from the ground and you know the popular will and it's just, just traditional Latin American leftism, and 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 he has been slammed for the COVID response. I mean, one of the jokes is like his daily briefings have become these sort of like, you know, negations of science. And, you know, there's a big question of like, who is the worst responder to COVID-19 in the Western hemisphere, Donald Trump, AMLO, or, you know, the Brazil president, Jair Bolsonaro. It's like, pick, pick, pick them. They're all kind of in denial and the data is showing. And so Mexico is going through a tough time in COVID. I agree with Adriana about the they're not showing up with masks. Everything's like, oh, everything's fine. We're going to do commerce and everything. But this is the part that gets me. There's two things that I need to say that really, uh, on Lowe's Twitter profile, there's a picture of him. He visited the Lincoln uh, Monument on Wednesday. 
and there's this picture of him looking up at Lincoln. And if there's any like image, if there's, if you want to talk about bad optics about like the Mexican president looking so small in front of the massive Lincoln monument in the middle of like these times, like if that doesn't tell me we are the second class neighbor and you know, we we're going to acquiesce to the imperial Americans. Here it is. And the quote that he said, and I'm going to quote the Associated Press, and Adriana said it when, you know, when Trump insulted, like basically started his campaign on anti-Mexican xenophobia, hate, and bigotry. And now five years later, almost five years to the day, Lopez Obrador says this, and I'm quoting, instead of remembering the insult, things like that against me, we have received from you, President Trump, an understanding and respect. Some people thought ideological differences would inevitably lead to confrontation. And I'm just sitting here going, where's your dignity, um, you know, President Lopez Obrador? This is all about money. This is all about commerce. And that's it. And and he's getting slammed in the Mexican media, not only for COVID, but for doing this. And what did you think was going to happen? And a lot of people feel like he's become a traitor to Mexico because he did this. Well, we're going to hear more about that later. I That's just the beginning of that, I can tell you. So <laughs> true, true. <laughs> let me uh, switch topics now to uh, the Democratic presidential nominee, Joe Biden, and his uh, very concentrated effort to get the Latino vote, to uh, let everybody know what's at stake. 32 million Latinos are eligible to vote, and Latinos, let's listen to this, will be the largest non-white voting bloc in this upcoming election. So this is serious. He just announced a Latino leadership committee. It's co-chaired by former Secretary of Labor, Hilda Solis, and former Secretary of the Interior, Ken Salazar. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that he has crafted some uh, very specific targeted ads uh, to cut through uh, to various um, ethnic communities within the Latino community, which we use as an overarching umbrella. So here's a clip from Joe Biden's newest Spanish language ads using the slogan, it translates, stories don't stop the pandemic, a play on the words that roughly means telling stories won't pay the bills. So here it is. Las cuentas no las detienen ni una pandemia. Y mientras se acumulan las cuentas, Trump continúa vendiendo cuentos. Este noviembre, dejemos claro que los cuentos no pagan las cuentas. Este noviembre, cuenta con Joe Biden. Now, what I should add, Adriana, before you respond, is that when it when the ad aired in Miami, there was a Cuban accent. In Orlando, Florida, the accent was Puerto Rican. In Phoenix, it was Mexican. Go right ahead. <laughs> Well, I think that that's just sort of, I mean, I do want to give them credit for at least trying to be, um, I guess, culturally appropriate and try to, I mean, the the reality is Latinos are not a monolithic group. So there are different accents. Um, But what I do find kind of funny about this is the emphasis is just like, okay, let's find somebody to get the right accent and the right speaking tone. You know, there's really not a lot of emphasis on the policies. It's these articles about, you know, crafting the message and the the Mm. style of marketing, which I just find kind of funny because like a lot of Latinos, 
at least in California, and, and I think, you know, that in the Western states, we're very pro-Sanders. And yeah, Sanders had really good Latino outreach, but I also think, you know, they, they were really drawn to his policies. So I see a lot of this stuff with Biden. I mean, yeah, it's good that they're trying to make a concerted effort to reach these groups, paying attention and acknowledging that they're not all the same. But yeah, I just sort of noticed sort of the absence of policy. Mm-hmm. Um, I would I would also point out, Julio, before you respond, that um, yeah. there are a whole bunch of unregistered Puerto Ricans who moved to Florida. So there's a whole other group of people that they definitely yeah. want to, you know, get on. The- That's also on the Democratic Party to actually it's, it, it goes to what Adrian says. You just can't say, oh, Trump threw paper towels at Puerto Ricans. Because of the hurricane in 2017, like that's like people were like looking for jobs or think about education, healthcare, all those, all the pocketbook issues. Guess what? Puerto Rican voters, Latino voters, Mexican American voters, Cuba, like they care about that too. So I think it's very important. So I, I agree 100% with what Adriana's saying about sort of like this fascination, this discovery that all of a sudden it's like, oh, let's change the accents and that's going to appeal to people. Like, so many Latin American Latino agencies have been doing this in marketing for decades. And to have Tom Perez be like, like realize that this is some discovery that this is going to get more Latinos to vote for Biden. I just find it to be like a little bit funny. And I will say, Callie, I'm telling you, I've said this and I keep saying it democratic party. If you're just saying like Trump is bad, vote for Biden, Latinos vote for Biden. It's not going to work. And I will say the lot, you know, Latinos for Trump, they're doing this every day. They're actually on, they're streaming, they're screening socialism in a crowded movie theater. And it's, you know, he still could essentially get 20 to 30% of the Latino vote, which is all he needs, Mm -hmm. all he needs to to be reelected again. So I really think Joe Biden still has to have this massive transformational moment with the Latino community and he has to admit that the broken promises of the Obama administration regarding immigration, regarding the porter in chief, impacted the Latino community at a much deeper level. And not only that, Kelly, you need to look at the Obamacare, you know, healthcare, Latinos not having that access. Also during the housing crisis, Latinos were like lost wealth. And I say this and people think I'm probably like angry. I'm like, no, I'm passionate about it. It's like 2016 all over again. And guess what? Hillary Clinton didn't win. Hmm. And, and people are like, well, there's a pandemic. It's like, focus on the policy. Focus on what are the real steps that are going to get through the Latino community. What about the, leader, the leadership committee? Do, you, do either of you have any confidence in this? He has two cabinet secretaries that served under Obama, at, you know, leading, heading up this committee. You know, in Hilda Solis and in Ken Salazar is quite telling because I think it sort of signals like we're going to go back to the Obama era. And there are a lot of Latinos who really aren't comfortable with that, who are very disappointed in how Obama, the Obama presidency turned out, not just because of the record breaking deportations, but a whole host of other things. Um, So I think that that is that's a little bit problematic. I mean, this committee, he could have gone with a younger Latino leadership, I think. You know, Hilda Solis Mm -hmm. and Ken Salazar are sort of more old guard. They're sort of what you would think of as sort of the Democratic establishment. So I do think that a lot of people will wonder, you know, like, well, why them? In the African-American community, we would describe them as white validated black people. 
<laughs> so, so I'm just yeah, saying. No, I think, I think <laughs> Tally, I, I think the point about youth, I think the point about the moment, right? Like, you know, we're in this, it's not only the pandemic, we're in another pandemic of like systemic racism. This is a moment for the Joe Biden campaign to maybe wake up and be like, who are the young Latino yeah. and Latina leaders who are maybe protest who are leading the movement and they're out there allies they're out there they're out there and i think it sends the right Mm -hmm. message like when you hear i mean this is not a knock i mean ilda solis and ken salazar they're established leaders in the community but it does feel like 2008 and guess what Adriana's right it's like there's a little bit there needs to be something else something is missing in the biden campaign and they don't like me saying that believe me (laughs) Well, I'm sure that no campaign wants you to say that, so so I get that. Um, if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Julio Ricardo Varela of the Futuro Media Group and Adriana Maestas, a journalist covering Latino politics. We are talking about the latest Latinx news you may have missed. Let me switch topics again to statues. We've seen a, a big um, movement across the country to bring down a, a certain Confederate statues, well, a lot of Confederate statues, and they have the history of the Confederacy and white supremacy. Um, there's also a move to bring down some statues, uh, Spanish colonial statues that have certain history that many people find very uncomfortable and racist. And others say, no, well, this represents history. There are some people saying that about Confederate statues, too, but not as many African-Americans, I will say. So what do you guys think? Um, I'm noting that one of these statues, I cannot pronounce the name correctly, but it's one. Yeah, Juan de Oñate. Oñate. Okay, the guy ordered the amputation of men's feet and later their hands as punishment for having fought the Spanish. I don't know. That seems pretty clear to me. But okay, um, he's this is considered a still he was considered you know somebody who represented Mexican history to many, um, and that uh, the statue should remain. So weigh in, Julio. Just as much as the Confederate statue issue has been. Um a topic, an issue um, in the um, African-American community, um, Cali, just as if Mount Rushmore has been an issue in the indigenous community, the statues of conquistadores and Christopher Columbus has been an issue in the Latino community and in Latin America. So it, this does not surprise me, and especially the, the example of New Mexico. Um, we actually, uh, the Latino USA team actually did um, a story a couple of years ago about this and sort of how this speaks to, you know, it's, I personally think that this is just like Confederate statues. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, there's no, if you're, you're building, you're, you're memorializing history based on genocide and based on, you know, attacking and killing of marginalized peoples. And then you're just going to put up a statue and say like, this is our heritage. I mean, New Mexico is, complicated because there's a strong Hispano tradition there um, that there are people, you know, there are, gener- you know, there are new Mexicans that have been in that part of the world before the United States was ever like official. So I get it, but at the same time, we need to be real of what actually happened. And in the five, 600 years of history that preceded us and start having these conversations, and just as the Confederate statues are being talked about, I mean, why can't we have the same conversation about these conquistador statues? I feel that they're equivalent. 
and I think it's part of the bigger conversation. So, Adriana, um, there's a guy named Daniel Ortiz who has a petition called Stop Attacking Our Hispanic Heritage, almost 3,000 signatures um, as of, uh, you know, this week. So what do you think? Are you with Julio? Get rid of him? Yeah, I'm fine with getting rid of him. I actually wrote a piece, and it's funny because Julio probably remembers this, for Latino USA about almost three years ago talking about this. And even then they were talking about, I mean, and there had been conversations, you know, years prior to that. So um, I, I basically think, you know, when we celebrate the conquistadors or when we have these statues, um, I, I think that a lot of people have come to the realization that, you know, for many of us, we can acknowledge and say, yes, that's part of our heritage, but that's not really what we want to celebrate. So right. we recognize that our heritage is complicated, you know, that we do have indigenous roots um, and that, you know, in many cases, a lot of us have been complacent in perpetuating colonial violence. But, you know, we don't need to uphold these figures of, of that violence. So, um, you know, I, I think a lot of us are, are realizing, you know, like I, I do come that they, they come from both. I know, speaking for myself, I know that I have, you know, the ancestry of the conquerors and the natives. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I just don't really want to center these people who were so cruel and we mm-hmm. don't have to. And we, right. and we need to have these real conversations about this. And also, I think that in promoting these statues, it's also been about kind of hinting to the larger Anglo public, like, hey, we're white adjacent. Look at our look at our guys in the statues. <laughs> um, Got it. So, yeah, I think that's I think that's it. And, you know, but when you talk to young people, especially out here in the southwest, a lot of young Chicanos there, you know, right now we're in the middle of pandemic. There are a lot of people who are without jobs. I mean, we really don't. I think that what happens to these statues is not a high priority thing. Got it. There you go. Well, I would like, I hate to, you know, have a conversation that's full of strum and drang. I'd like to, you know, end on something that's um, uplifting in some way. And so I wanted to point out that uh, the death of author Rodolfo, is it Ananya? Ananya, yeah. Ananya. He died last month. Um, Let's first listen to him reading from his novel, Bless Me Ultima, the most widely acclaimed novel in the Chicano literary canon. Ultima came to stay with us the summer I was almost seven. When she came, the beauty of the Llano unfolded before my eyes, and the gurgling waters of the river sang to the hum of the turning earth. The magical time of childhood stood still, and the pulse of the living earth pressed its mystery into my living blood. That was Rodolfo Anaya reading from his novel. And I should say that uh, his work was at one point, um, you know, banned, and then, Mm -hmm. you know, that made him actually more popular and people began to realize how important he was and how, you know, his writing was so uh, beautiful and, and really spoke to a lot of what was happening in Chicano uh, communities and history. So, uh, Julio, respond. I want to say one thing. I have had the distinct honor to edit and publish Wow. in the early 90s when I was a young um, bilingual education textbook editor for a publishing house um, in Boston, Hope Mifflin. So I had the pleasure of commissioning a piece for him. I was 22, 23 years old, and I got to work an original piece that we published in a grade four textbook. And it was about 
a young man growing up in the Southwest and dealing with questions of identity. And I was just so proud of that, that we, you know, we were so committed to having literature that was representative of the communities that we were serving in bilingual classes all over the Southwest in California, Texas. And I remember talking to, to him at the time, he's, it, he, it was like, I can't believe I'm talking to the great Pudor Fanaya. And wow. Let Me Ultima is required reading for anyone, any American, anyone in the world. Um, it is a Chicano literature, um, iconic work. And I'm just so happy that as an editor, I got to publish one of his pieces. Wow. And I still think about that to this day. Wow. That's really quite the honor. Adriana. Yeah, you know, I too, I, you know, I never got to work with him, but I heard him speak in the late 1990s. And he was kind enough to um, sign a few books that I had. And, you know, I just to echo, he was really a big deal. Um, a lot of people I know say that they really did not see themselves in literature until they read um, his books. And, you know, Bless Me Ultima being one of them, especially for children. And I read that as a child. So I think a lot of um, a lot of people, a lot of Latinos and Chicanos, especially those of us from the Southwest states, uh, you know, this is just in a way it's kind of like part of our childhood. You know, you read Bless Me Ultima. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, he, he, was a, he was a big deal. I mean, he captured New Mexico and sort of the Southwest, and he wrote a lot about Albuquerque in a way that um, a lot of people, I think, try to emulate. Um, right. So, you know, he, he is a loss, um, but I just hope that, you know, more people pick up his book because he was a trailblazer for us. Yes. Well, I thank you for both for joining me, and we'll have to do this again. Thanks, Callie. Thank you, Callie. Julio Ricardo Varela is the digital editor for the Vuturo Media Group, co-host of the In the Thick podcast, and founder of Latino Rebels. And Adriana Maestas is a Southern California-based freelance writer covering Latino politics. Coming up, surviving 20 days in solitary confinement at Rikers Island, escaping abusive relationships, and parenting two kids couldn't end Jacqueline Velez's dream of getting her college degree, and neither could COVID-19. How an innovative associates program helped Jackie and her fellow students earn their diplomas while living in a pandemic. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Crossley, and now for the part of the show we call Lanyap, that's Creole for something extra. Massachusetts universities and colleges have just announced fall plans outlining how they will both teach and keep students safe. This after the unplanned mid-semester pivot to online learning left many scrambling to find solutions to the challenges of distance learning. But the administration and faculty of Bard Micro College Holyoke had more to consider than how to plan the Zoom calendar of classes. Their tiny student population is made up of young, low-income mothers determined to unlock the shackles of past incarcerations. Joining me remotely, Mary Ann Myers, Program Director of Bard Micro College Holyoke. Hi, Mary Ann. Hi, Kelly. 
Also, Ann Teschner, Executive Director of the Care Center in Holyoke, Massachusetts, where the Bard Micro College is housed. Hello, Ann. Hello, Kelly. And Jacqueline Velez, Regional Organizing Director for a U.S. Senate campaign and a Bard Micro College Holyoke 2020 graduate. Welcome, Jackie. Thank you. Hi, how are you? I'm great. I'm glad to have all of you. Uh, Marianne, I'm going to start with you because I heard the term microcollege for the first time as it related to barred microcollege. This was not something familiar to me. I'm going to suggest that probably most of my listeners have never heard of it either. So please first describe what is a microcollege? Well, as the name suggests, it's a small college. Uh, so we are a satellite campus of Bard College and Bard Prison Initiative, and we serve students from the care center, and we arrange the classes, conduct the classes, and deliver them typically at the care center until March of 2020, and it's a 60-credit associate degree program, and we've had 28 graduates since we began in August 2016. And you've been there since 2016. What what appealed to you about being a part of this? Well, I was very excited to do something for women. I had taught at uh, West Point for two years before I taught for a year at the Bard Prison Initiative. And this was a new uh, model of community education. And I was up for the challenge. Hmm. So I want to point out, because as I said, I never heard of this, uh, microcolleges, period. But there are a few of them around the country. Um, Deep Springs is the one that maybe some have heard of. It's the smallest college in the country. Um, and by the way, when we say microcolleges, you've explained there's a small population. That usually means under 100. Uh, Deep Springs usually has about 26 students. There's Sterling College in Craftsbury Common, Vermont, Thoreau College, um, and Flagstaff College, just to name a few others. And they both operate under the tiny is great. Um, and they may have different perspectives, different kinds of constituencies that they serve. But the bottom line is that they're small and they are doing uh, college classes uh, with the various perspectives of, that each of them uh, bring to it. But here, the BART uh, Microcollege Initiative has a particular focus for young women. So, Anne, uh, you've been at the Care Center, which is where the, the BARD College is housed. So tell me about how the Microcollege came to be housed there. So the Care Center's kind of core population are pregnant and parenting teen moms who have dropped out of school and are involved with the welfare system. And to get their welfare benefits, they need to be doing something educational. So um, initially, we were just a GED program, but it became clear to me that students were not going to make it on a GED, that they really needed to have college credentials if they were going to actually move out of poverty and be in a stable position. So we changed the curriculum. We thought, okay. People in prep schools succeed. Let's borrow from that model. So we've layered on top of it many of the things that you see in prep schools, arts and humanities, athletics, high expectations, lots of support. And the final piece was the expectation that you go on to college. You know, it took us two or three years to get it all rolling. It was great. It worked. 75% of our graduates went on to college, even though they were um, high school dropouts. But what we were seeing is maybe 15% were finishing their degree. So this was not the goal. This was not the goal at all. We had been working for many years with Bard College on a, on a 
different initiative called the Clemente Course and had a working relationship through that. I knew that they had the Bard Prison Initiative, which had an associate's degree program in the in the prisons. So if you can move an associate's degree into a prison, could you move it into a community setting? So we approached Bard and said, you want to do this? Is this possible? And to our delight, they not only said they would help us, they said they would partner with us. And uh, the micro-college was born to support the the continued education initially of the, the graduates of the care center. And most of the young women you're dealing with are mothers, so that adds another layer to this. Exactly. So at the care center, we've got educational opportunities, we've got the enhancements, the cultural activities, but we also have a nurse practitioner and daycare and counselors and door-to-door transportation, essentially recognizing all those challenges that poverty present to women, recognizing that we could address those, we could, we could mitigate those, and so we do. Here's a student from Bard Micro College, Holyoke, describing her work-life balance. When I get out of class, I go back to my life. Picking up the kids from school, cleaning, cooking, homework with Mikey. I don't take time out of my school or out of my studies to do what I have to do at home. I take time out of my life to study and to go to school. So um, that was just uh, one of the students uh, who's uh, passed through your doors, but we have one who's actually graduated, uh, Jacqueline, Jackie Velez. Um, congratulations, first of all, because you did graduate, got your diploma. I know the ceremony has been postponed from May until August, but it's still quite an accomplishment. So first, congrats. Um, so tell us how you did it. If, um, I'd like to begin, actually, with how you found out about Bard Microcollege. I moved to Massachusetts about five years ago while I got used to living in a new state because I am originally from Brooklyn, New York. I was at a WIC office, the Women, Infant, and Children program, where they provide milk and cheese and bread for young kids under five. And I saw a flyer there for the writing class that would offer six credits at the care center. So I called and I signed up a few months after I moved here. At that time, I guess the idea of the Bard College coming to Holyoke at the care center was in its starting stage. And I was offered a spot after interviewing and testing and writing. And I actually declined the the offer to attend Bard in the fall of 2016 because I got a job around the same time. So I, I worked my job as an organizer for a nonprofit uh, for the next two years, and sometime during those two years, a part, a second part to that first class I took was being offered. And now that I knew my schedule and it was a bit flexible, I was able to do that class. And through that second class, I was asked about BART again. And they were like, you know, you could be part of cohort five. And every teacher and every counselor that knew me that would walk by would say, you ready for BARD now? (laughs) They were pretty consistent and persistent. I found out more about the program. I knew that they initially worked in New York State prisons, giving degrees there. And I thought to myself, I've tried to go to college several times. I keep losing credits every time I've transferred. Maybe, just maybe, because I'm a prison reform advocate, this might actually be 
the best fit for me. When I started, Marianne, the lovely Marianne. That's Marianne Myers, the program director. Go ahead. Yes. <laughs> uh, relentless woman. She actually told me, you can do the program. I have been trying to get a, an associate degree since 2004. Mm-hmm. And so at 20, at, in 2018, I was like, what's two more years, right? Like, <laughs> so I just, Let's do it. I just agreed to, but she was relentless in her pursuit of getting me to go. <laughs> And I don't well, know let me it, interrupt you and go back to Marianne Myers, because I want to, Marianne, I think what, what Jackie's saying that we really need to hear is that there is a, uh, a kind of uh, dedication and determination for both the faculty and administration of this program um, in working with the, the students uh, to really make this not just a possibility, but a reality. Yes, and the, the care center is a big part of that. The, um, I think the, the thing that enables so many of our students to complete the program is the sense of community that exists uh, among them and between them and the staff and the faculty. We really believe in these students. They're very smart. Um, they, when, they, when they're admitted, they write a, an essay and have a short interview and they're accepted on the basis of their ambition. And Teschner, there is something underlying um, uh, the program that's more than how many classes, what the availability is. There, there appears to me from as I've read all and heard all of your stories that there is a real um, community. I mean, a close knit one, and everybody's working together to make sure that success happens for these students. Talk to me about that. There definitely is a community and a real intentionality on our part to support that in whatever ways we can. Certainly, I think one of the key ways we do that is um, pretty persistent messages about the competence of the women who come to the care center and the micro-college, the capacity these women have, and the, the imperative. It, we, we need your help right now in the world. Um, and I think students hearing that message um, collectively begin to believe it and begin to support each other as they um, evolve and you know become stronger writers and better speakers and um, just more grounded in the human experience. I think there's a way in which um, we assume that people in poverty don't have intellectual hunger or interest. Um, I think there's a way in which it can be dismissed. And I think the, the community of students at the Care Center and the Microcollege support each other in expanding their sense of possibility and, and being scholars. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Marianne Myers, Program Director of Bard Micro College Holyoke, and Teschner, Executive Director of the Care Center. You just heard her. And Jacqueline Velez, Bard Micro College Holyoke 2020 graduate. We're talking about how the micro college is educating low-income women amid the pandemic, which brings me back to you. And uh, the pandemic really shook up a lot of stuff for everybody. So certainly uh, much larger colleges and universities had to pivot quite quickly. Um, what was the impact of that on your program? Because the intimacy is so much a part of it, as we've discussed, and that was really disrupted. It was definitely disrupted, and it was an unwelcome, as it was for everyone, an unwelcome occurrence. I guess for me, what what it, but it also had this like you know silver lining 
aspect to it in that uh, students rose to the occasion. They supported each other more, not less. Um, for students, it could have easily been a moment to say, there are too many big things on my plate. There's too many things happening in the world. Studying moral philosophy is not what I should be doing right now. But instead, I would say students really doubled down and supported each other and said, we're almost at the end here for those who did graduate this year. We have to keep going. It's really important. And me watching that, I was so inspired with the kind of depth of, of integrity of these students. It was really a wonderful thing to see. Marianne Myers, I wanted to get at your being a human alarm clock for Jackie Velez. (laughs) (laughs) She says you are not about to let her miss a day. So talk to me about that that intimate relationship that you built, not just with Jackie, but with with all the students, because the goal was to get the diploma. Well, the the transition to remote learning was was quite um, startling, as as Ann said. And we did plan it. uh, We had you know, we took a week and, and planned it and um, made sure that the students had connectivity um, and that the professors could adapt the classes. And then we also, the staff made a pact to text and call every student every week. Um, we, we had a rotating list. So... Uh, Marianne, that's quite different from calling someone in the morning to make sure they're up. Come on, well, fess up. Talk Jacqueline, about it. <laughs> Jacqueline was a, a special situation because she and I were doing an independent study in the spring and we were rolling merrily along until this happened. And then the best time for Jacqueline to write is before she starts work, before Emmett gets up and before she starts work. And so um, we made a plan to have, uh, we opened a Zoom or a meet at, at six or seven, sometimes eight. uh, (laughs) And we would, we would write together for two hours and check in and talk about what we were reading for the course. And it was less formal than it might have been, but it, it worked. And um, I think both Jacqueline and I treasure those (laughs) dawn hours (laughs) um, in our bathrobes, drinking our coffee. I think she's being a little modest, but Marianne uh, was very persistent, and she let me know, like, you know, you're not getting a free ride. You're going to have to work for it. (laughs) But she also worked, right? Like, she would make sure that she texted me the day before, like, don't forget, we have class tomorrow at this time. And I'm like, okay. Um, So she actually reminded me of class all the time and what we were going to go over and, you know, she actually helped me get through that. I really don't see myself having get like getting through that without her. And she was reading the text along with me, right? Like, so basically, I have not ever had a professor to do something like that, right? And and never give me back a paper with just red scribbling all over it, right? It wasn't just about grammar. It was more about substance. And she made sure to somehow draw that from within me to get it out on paper. Well, one of the things that I know that uh, they were able, she was able to, and others there at uh, the micro college were able to draw out of you what you're writing. Um, Let's brag about you. You have a recent piece in O Magazine about time spent, 20 days spent in solitary confinement and what that was like. Beautifully written, Uh, Jackie, congratulations. 
You you write uh, weekly with the voice from inside a group of formerly incarcerated women. And we should say that the piece that was in O is the beginning of a book. Once you uh, get some moment uh, moments to yourself uh, <laughs> from uh, being a regional organizing director for a U.S. Senate campaign. So where my question to you, and I know others would be interested in, where might you be if if Bard Micro College had not uh, become a significant part of your life? So I feel like I pretty much was going through the motions with life, like going to my job, taking care of my child, right? Bard gave me life and hope for the future, right? That I've not ever had. Like I've had those moments before, but they would flee. They would leave, right? And so for the first time in my life, being at Bard, they believed so much in me more than I believed in myself that something clicked inside of me where now it's staying with me, right? Like I did that so I can do anything, right? Um, Because it was not easy at all. I'm still surprised that I actually graduated. (laughs) It was not easy, and I actually don't think I would have been able to do it without Marianne and the help of, you know, the admin staff like Ann Ward and Christine Rose. They were all critical to my success in completing uh, my degree. I am formerly incarcerated. I did write the piece for O, but it's funny because Marianne would always say, Jackie, save it for Oprah. So I did. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. (laughs) But, you know, uh, the intention was to end our independent study class with a writing. It just wasn't planned for it to be that. Turned out okay, though. It did. And and (laughs) I actually am proud that for the first time I've been published, it happens to be, you know, in Oprah. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, I just want to raise up the accomplishment, um, not just your individual accomplishment, but of all of the women. and, And that's being recognized outside of uh, the micro-college, I I wanted to have a chance to uh, have you listen to Amy Poehler congratulating the first graduates of Bard Micro-College Holyoke. This is back in 2018, because this is how impressive your, uh, your work is. I just wanted to say congratulations to all the Bard Micro-College graduates from Holyoke who have completed their program and have improved their lives and their children's lives. I look forward to hearing about the opportunities that await and can't wait to work for all of you someday. On behalf of myself and all the mass holes in Massachusetts, (laughs) you did an awesome job. You're wicked smart. Congratulations. I thought that was fabulous. Uh, it's Amy Poehler, the actress, uh, as everyone knows. And But you need, um, it's nice to have that outside validation um, from perfect strangers about what your accomplishment is like. Um, Anne Teschner, what, I know you've been closed, the care center's been closed, but it's going to open up again um, uh, mid-July. Uh, so now, we're pretty close to now. And, um, you know, all of the students that have been a little bit on pins and needles, but as they try to balance all the stuff that you offer outside of this in a, in a virtual experience, I imagine we'll have be, be able to spend some physical time at the care center. What's the future look like? That's the hope. Um, we will definitely be doing some activities at the care center and trying to um, have the program be as familiar to students as it was before we left, there'll have to be changes, and we're anticipating there'll be bumps along the way. Um, I, I don't think anyone's uh, really 
you know, thrilled about this idea that we might have to do more virtual work. Uh, it's, it's, we, we've done it, but clearly part of the appeal and the power of the care center is community. So we're committed to opening the building, doing it safely. I'm learning all about um, disinfectants and who's better, alcohol or bleach, you know, <laughs> and we just, um, we're, we're proceeding. We, we actually just submitted our plans to the state to, uh, to reopen in, in the second week in July. So that, that's the plan. I'm one of those people that feels like I need a physical place and a teacher. I never thought of myself as an online learner or someone that would do any classes online whatsoever. I've seen other people do it, and what I've seen is a lot of pre-recordings and things like that. I think that we were successful this semester with all the challenges, unprecedented challenges um, that we faced because the teachers were live. It wasn't a pre-recording. They were there with us. They also provided office hours and met with us outside of class. So that still felt like although we had to pivot, it didn't change that bond or that community feeling that is so unique about the BARD program as well as the care center. Well, that's a good place to end, I think. Um, what a great institution and the work that you're doing is, is uh, new to many of us, but now we know. And I appreciate all of you talking to me about it. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Marianne Myers is the program director of Bard Micro College Holyoke, and Teschner is the executive director of the Care Center in Holyoke, Massachusetts, where the Bard Micro College is housed. And Jacqueline Velez is a regional organizing director for a U.S. Senate campaign and a Bard Micro College Holyoke 2020 graduate. That's it for this week's show. We're on the web at WGBH.org, News Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of WGBH, produced by Hannah Ubeli and engineered by Dave Goodman. Rebecca Tauber is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Sexies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.